I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 227 of Rendering Unconscious podcast. Today, my guests are Drs. Mary Kim Brewster and Carter Carter. They're here to talk about the upcoming conference they're organizing, Our Beautiful Struggle, Destruction, Creation, and Psychoanalysis, the 42nd Annual Spring Meeting of Division 39 of the American Psychological Association, Society for Psychoanalysis and Psychoanalytic Psychology. The events are to be held in Manhattan, April 26th to 29th. For more information, visit division39springmeeting.net. Rendering Unconscious is celebrating five years, so I want to take a special moment to thank all of my listeners, guests, and our Patreon community. Thank you so much. I wouldn't be here without you. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Thank you so, so much. Your support is so greatly appreciated. You can also follow me on social media at Rawson underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore at Twitter and Instagram and Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23 at TikTok. You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and for links and more information to everything discussed on this podcast, visit the main website, renderingunconscious.org. As with nearly all episodes of Rendering Unconscious podcast, there is a video of this discussion available at YouTube. Visit Trapar Films' YouTube channel, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film, at YouTube, or search for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Well, Carter and I are co-chairing the 42nd um, spring meeting for Division 39, the Society for Psychoanalysis and Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy. Um, We are um, thrilled Carter and I have been um, um, working together for years, but this is the first time we've kind of come together to really build something. And we have very different um, skill sets, um, but um, they seem to kind of work beautifully together. Um, And it's been a really exciting, exciting time. Um, um, The conference is called Our Beautiful Struggle. Destruction, Creation, and Psychoanalysis. And our beautiful struggle came from a letter that Freud wrote to Jung um, in 1907. And when he said that, one day in retrospect, the years of struggle will be the most um, beautiful. And Carter and I really wanted to use that kind of creative energy because we've been through so much um, to imagine beauty at the conference, okay? The second part was really influenced by Fanon, um, um, who wrote in 1976, and I'm gonna read this. Um, Every time a man has contributed to to the victory of the dignity of the spirit, every time a man has said no to attempt to subjugate his fellows, I have felt solidarity 
with his act. So we were hoping to um, bring the two threads of Freud and Fanon together um, in this conference and celebrate psychoanalysis. Yeah. And, and you know, I think too, it's a celebration of psychoanalysis. And I think it's intended to be a challenge to the organs of professional psychoanalysis with which, yeah. Mary, I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but correct me if I'm wrong, but with which we're both quite dissatisfied mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, and, and I think, a thing that, you know, in our experiences professionally we had in common and that we also have in common, I think, with many people on our steering committee is feeling any combination of uh, ignored, undermined, damaged, um, abandoned by professional psychoanalysis and its organizations um, and really wanting to build a meeting that could attend to why that happened, why that continues to happen all the time to so many people. What is it about our profession that can be so destructive? Um, obviously like the kind of ego ideal of psychoanalysis is as a, an intellectual tradition that can be destructive of defenses, of bad ideas, of bad institutions. And it is those things, but it can also eat its own I think is a phrase that Mary you used in the past, um, <laughs> in, a, in a in a really um, ruthless, ugly way, mm -hmm. and, and we wanted to build an experience for people in our community where we could really countenance and try to deal with that, um, yeah. and figure out moreover like how to build new things for ourselves that could be better, for want of a better way to put it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Carter and I talked a lot about this because we wanted to move out of um, a position of just grievance to actually creativity and actually making the conference that we wanted to go to. Okay, so that was that was um, that was the energy, you know, that we were just kind of, um, you know, we were tired of waiting. You know, I felt personally invisibilized. Um, we, but then we got this opportunity and said, okay, well, what's the conference that, what do, what's the conference we want to go to? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think um, um, I've been thinking so much about, you know, um, you know, there's this idea that psychoanalysis is over, you know, um, you know, I think that the old Mark Twain reports of my demise have been exaggerated, but mm -hmm. what we were talking about, Carter and I talked about how psychoanalysis is so alive and vibrant. And Vanessa, you talked about in your podcast, in other areas, in academia, in queer theory, in the arts, in literature. Um, it's been, it's very alive in many areas. So we wanted to kind of capture some of those um, um, voices and bring them into, into psychoanalysis as well. So, so we kind of broadened um, broaden the traditional kind of categories of who would be coming to present. Yeah. Yeah. Say more about yeah. that. Okay. Well, um, the first thing, I mean, Carter, you want to talk about our steering committee? Do you want to? Totally. Yeah. So um, our steering committee, to, to my knowledge, this is the first time, I, I'm pretty positive that Division 39 has never had a steering committee that was all ECPs. So this steering committee is all early career professionals, which APA defines as uh, within 10 years of graduation. Um, we have a token white person on our steering committee and besides that. And a token um, older person, which would be me. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm aging like fruit here, too. But, um, the, you know, this is a, 
on the whole, very young, very black and brown, very queer, very radical group of people curating this thing and building something that we really wanted to see for our for ourselves. Um, and the, the, Mary, you may want to speak more about this, but what I'll say generally is um, we, we've often been pretty bored at psychoanalytic meetings, not <laughs> necessarily because the content is boring, although that is sometimes true anywhere, but like, because the, the modality of the psychoanalytic meeting is so ossified, right? That like, at its best, psychoanalysis is like, an, it's a conversation, which is to say that it's improvised and we don't know what's going to happen, right? That when you're in a room with a patient, you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> and that's, I think part of what keeps this work exciting for so many of us, right? That it's it's alive and fresh every time. And our and when we come together as colleagues, we're so not like that. Mm -hmm. So right, it is so staid, and we are so trying to impress each other, and so trying not to put a foot wrong. And it it really is um, it it's deadening, I think. And what so what we really wanted as we were building this conference is we essentially took out the idea of giving a paper at all. That's not happening at this conference. Our keynotes are three conversations between pairs of people who have a lot to say to each other and are willing to take the risk to figure it out on the fly in front of a thousand people. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's really exciting. And then all of, you know, down from our, the, the panels that we invited, the panels that Mary and I are both participating in to everything that we solicited through the peer review process. It's all people just talking to each other mm -hmm. and figuring it out in the room in the way that we all do professionally all the time. And the hope is that that, brings like a, a spark and an excitement and a real sense of like coming together, particularly after being apart for so long. Mm -hmm. And also that it, it proves like, we don't all just need to like show off for each other all the time, right? We get to be messy and go back and edit ourselves and, you know, have a half hatched thought that we don't necessarily stand by and that that's just, that's intellectually honest and desirable and doesn't need yeah. to be great. Yeah. Just to give you an idea, um, 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 we have three keynote conversations happening. Um, Annie Lee Jones and Alexandra Woods are going to be kicking us off um, on Thursday. And they are going to talk about their collaboration that they've had at NYU Postdoc on the Committee for Ethnicity, Race, Class, Culture, and Language, a long relationship between an African-American woman identified and, and a white woman and how they have worked together um, and how their relationship has changed and evolved over time. So it's um, a gift. They are gifting us. They are just gifting us with this um, very intimate kind of look at their relationship and then what it, what has um, what they what they hope the institution, what's the future um, of the of, of our institutes looks like. So I'm really thrilled about that. Um, then um, Stephen Sheha and David Ang, uh, yes, are going to um, be in conversation about psychoanalysis. Does psychoanalysis have the capacity to reinvent, um, to imagine a radical politics of, re of, re of, of reparation? I mean, do we have that? Okay, that is going to be fascinating. I know I'm going to be like my heart's going to be pounding all through that, that conversation. Um, and then 
um, on, um, on Saturday, Ann Pellegrini and Jeff Charlotte, who is a journalist, are going to talk about um, religion in America. And Anne's going to talk about religion and psychoanalysis and how we have somehow um, siloed religion and psychoanalysis in ways that doesn't make sense because I know in my work, um, people are talking about religion all the time. Um, but I think we're, we're inheriting some some kind of um, bifurcation from Freud that that's not part of treatment. Anyway, um, I'm, they're they're going to talk about that, and that's going to be very exciting as well. So, just to give you a a little um, reveal. Okay, it sounds amazing, and it's been so nice to see like the fortieth. Conference. I attended that virtually um, and gave a gave a talk about a book. And uh, yeah, it's just so nice to see the shift in the division. And I just hope it continues. And it seems like it is with this conference. And this sounds even more like amazing, like you said, because instead of it being like the traditional like academic paper presentations, you're facilitating these conversations, which is really like that. Also shifts it to feeling more and like. Yeah, like in a live theory and and practice, uh, rather than just abiding by like kind of the institutional guidelines of like how you're supposed to present your work with these like uh, really rigid ways. Yeah, I mean, we we sort of felt it was necessary because um um you know because of pandemic and how we've been working and how we've been isolated and how we've been talking heads like the way the three of us are right now that um. You know, there's there is a fatigue about just sort of like sitting in one place and just listening to a paper. I mean, I love papers. I love, you know, I love that. But I think we needed to really be um, and have it be um, have um, have have more flow and energy around us. You know, and and so this was I can't. This was Carter's great idea. I totally idea. I think the ideas emerge in milieus, right? I think it came out together. And, and, you know, part of what's so fun about our collaboration is like, you know, we overlap on so much and, you know, we're different people with different perspectives. And I think one of the things I really admire about Mary is like, I think, especially as a family therapist, you always are like looking for the reparative reading, right? Mm -hmm. For the like, how do you, how do we have a dynamic that is livable? And mm -hmm. that, that's so much of what I think you're aspiring to in this meeting. And yeah. uh, totally. I tend to be grouchier <laughs> and more or more oriented to the paranoid reading a little bit. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, part of what I... I, I come from like a multi-generational psychoanalytic family. My grandfather was an analyst. A lot of other people in my family are analysts. I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, like literally trick-or-treating at analysts' houses. Um, and, uh, you know, being a part of that community as a, as a social environment and then entering it as a profession, part of what felt so clear to me was like, here are so many people who have such great ideas who do not live their great ideas in practice reliably. Right. Mm -hmm. Which, okay, none of us are nailing it all the time. Right? So I, I don't want to single out psychoanalysts particularly, but it, it was definitely my, my feeling that, and remains my feeling that there's so much we don't want to see in ourselves, right? So many angles from which we don't want to be seen. And that a, a lot of our kind of professional practices that became naturalized over time are about only shooting ourselves from our good side, so to speak. And I, I think my research and my work is so about 
what are the harms that come to people in our profession mm-hmm. because of what's on the not good side, right? Be- what's what we're defending against our unsavoriness, our narcissism, our sadism, mm-hmm. right? Our, our tendency to coerce um, mm-hmm. that. I think if we really believe in psychoanalysis as a as a mode of like transforming ourselves, mm-hmm. what it invites us to do is look at everything, right? In mm-hmm. as unvarnished and frank a way as we possibly can, in order to like not be so ruled by our like the 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 weaker parts of ourselves, mm-hmm. um, or the the more unreconstructed parts of ourselves, and that. I think as a as a profession, what I'm hoping is that this kind of meeting and others like it, like they create a venue for us to just like deal with ourselves as we are, you know, and not do so much like what Goffman called face management. Mm-hmm. Um, and that some level of trust that that's a that that's going to be generative, even if it's you know new or uncomfortable in some way. It shouldn't be that we all do a work all the time. <laughs> Especially if it's uncomfortable, it'll be generative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, what do you think it is? This is like my endless frustration with like the practice, so transformative. <laughs> what is going on in the institutional structures that is so deadening? You know, like what are we doing? Yeah. Oh, can I take a whack at that one, Mary? Please. I've been writing about this a lot. Um, <clears throat> mm-hmm. I'm one of these people who was like, you know, an, like a constant adjunct and working all the time. And like, I didn't have the spaciousness to really write. And so I'm, I'm trying to get some of this stuff out now. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I really think that our institutions, I'm, I'm speaking for the United States because that's the context I know. I think that this generalizes in ways, but I, I can't say so decisively. But in the United States, our psychoanalytic institutions are totally bound up in whiteness and authoritarianism and a kind of capitalist mode, right? Mm-hmm. Like from the get, the like the New York Institute, like the first one, it initially invited uh, Jewish analysts who were being persecuted from abroad and like kind of brought them over and, and, and stewarded mm-hmm. them the first time. And then when more people started asking them to come, what they literally said was, they're going to take all the patients and then we're not going to have any money. So I guess they can stay. Right. This kind of stuff is in our institutional history from the get, right? That there, there, I think Nancy McWilliams called it cultures of narcissism, right? Like you don't see a lot of situations where Nancy McWilliams, Otto Kernberg, and me all agree on something. But what it seems like we all agree on <laughs> is that like there is an a disavowed identification with authoritarianism and and whiteness yeah. and, and power that governs our institutions and that like they that that culture and the kind of like opacity and self-contained nature of these institutes is just so it's such a total institution for the people who are a part of them that it just invites massive destructiveness right like sexual boundary violations people being um to borrow a phrase from one of my colleagues extruded uh in these really dehumanizing humiliating ways that really can like uh, run a career aground in different ways um it there's there's just just so much co- authoritarianism and coercion in the mm-hmm. basic structure of our American institutions that uh, and those then exert such gravity over everything else that it becomes very hard to break out of it. And I think it's not a coincidence that 
where psychoanalysis has really like thrived is in the humanities and that the, the right. every major movement right. in our like towards something better in our intellectual tradition has been when we re-imported psychoanalysis from the humanities back into the clinical domain and like mm -hmm. that's you know you can chart, like i don't need to chart you, your listener knows what those are but yeah. uh, you know we're, we're trying to do ever more of that in, in the hopes that it shakes some things loose yeah yeah, I don't, I think um, I agree with what Carter's saying. I think my own experience with, um, with I, I didn't, I did, I, rather than going into um, psychoanalytic training, I went into family therapy training, you know, and that was a very conscious move. This is, you know, I'm a lot older than you guys back in the Stone Age, this is even before relational, you know, was, was really a thing. Okay. Um but I made that decision because I didn't think psychoanalysis spoke to material reality in, in a way that I was living, you know, as, um, as a mixed race person. Um, it just did not theoretically, it didn't capture it, which was so disappointing because I, whenever I read anything uh, in psychoanalysis, it's already always there, you know, issues of marginalization and, body and affect and it's already there but for some reason when we go um, into our training institutes um, it's left at the door so um, I don't know why that happened but I never found that it spoke to my lived experience so um, I rejoined um, in a division 39 because Carter you know you know um, was was doing stuff like this and I thought you know well maybe Maybe I'll give it a try. And now um, um, I'm back um, and realizing that, um, um, you know, we've just, we, we, we just have phantom limbs. I mean, in, in the field, we just need to regenerate them. Okay. So part of this is, um, part of the conference for me is, is a real path of heart to kind of bring this back. Yeah. And be inclusive and be welcoming. There's so many barriers to entry. There's no need to have them that way. There's no need. Yeah. I'm just Yeah. That's perfectly put. There is no need to have all of these barriers to entry and, and like all these divisions in the field of like what psychoanalysis really is and how it has to be like this many times a week and in this way and everything's like there are many psychoanalyses, you know. <laughs> you know what I to to your point though, both the you know, and Mary, I I I think it's about money, right? What the mm. yeah. The, one of the the panels that I'm most excited about at the spring meeting is uh, it's kind of it's about money class and psychoanalysis, right? Which is a topic that kind of comes up periodically and then doesn't that it doesn't really get to, it gets defended against, right? There's a doing and undoing, and the more I look at this, the more I really think like a major function of our institutes is to provide a reliable upper middle class income to people who control them, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that th these are self-funding institutions that don't really have meaningful endowments for the most part, right? That, and where the, the, the they function like, almost like what Tressie McMillan Cotton calls like lower ed institutions, right? These two highly tuition dependent institutions that have a structural incentive to extract from the people who come to them, right? In order to, you know, keep the people who are running them in business. And I think that there's a lot of reasons why we don't like to talk about that as an institutional matter, but like, mm -hmm. I, I think we ignore it at our peril, right? We, we ignore 
uh, these kinds of material financial incentives that govern our intellectual tradition at our peril. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And then who gets access to the money that's generated through psychoanalytic practice? Like, yeah, if it's four or five times a week, you know, and they they only give it to these students that have followed these rules to get up to the, their standard. The majority of American analysis are clinicians, right? I mean, that we, we have data on that, right? So the, I, I really think we can't do more that. In a way, it's actually more of a patronage system than it used to be in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, right? Because in the mid-century American context, there were a bunch of people going into psychoanalysis, right? So the, this desire to like mint more people who needed to be trained, you could ethically justify that, right? But in a way, it actually does run parallel to what's happened in the humanities in the U.S., where this the, the shrinking of professional opportunities for the people who get that terminal qualification, right? It, it's strong to the point where basically everybody's seeking the path in. What they're actually doing is just propping up the livelihood of the people who were already there and that mm-hmm. they're not going to be able to go and do it. Like they're not going to be able to go mm-hmm. do the thing. I personally don't care. Like I, I don't think many people need to be in therapy that frequently to do generative work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it it just seems to me that like... It, it's always revealing when we can't be honest with ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, when there's something like we scotomize, like it's right in front of our face and we just can't stand mm-hmm. it. And when you talk about this, it's like when else people lose their minds, right? That there's a few of these topics that have the effect of being utterly psychologically disorganizing on analysts. This is one and race is one. And mm-hmm. there's a, I'm currently at you, I'm going to be presenting early, early findings of this work at the conference. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm the PI of a study on uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color's experiences of discrimination in psychoanalytic professional organizations. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we're finding is that discrimination is absolutely the norm and not the exception for mm-hmm. BIPOC in our field. And that uh, one of the one of the quotations from one of our participants that sticks with me constantly is she, she said with this tone of total frustration, you're supposed to be thinking dynamically. <laughs> There's this constant experience of the, you know, you as a person of color, as a working class person, as a queer, like there, there, it's so obvious to you how dynamically rich these issues are and how what a thick enactment is happening around you. And then the person who's supposed to be, you know, teaching you to think that way is just constitutionally incapable of doing it. Right. It almost reminds me of um, uh, Peter Fonagy has this thing that he found in researching people with borderline dynamics where they learn to turn off mentalizing in the context of certain close relationships because it is just too threatening. Right. Mm -hmm. And that that is a necessary adaptation in that early phase of life that then makes it kind of impossible to have rich relationships as you get older, because when you get close, you just can't see the person in front of you for what who they really are. You can only see them for your projected anxieties. And you almost see that happening with analysts so often. I think that like th- their capacity to to think analytically collapses at the site where their material security is m- most in play. Sure. Sorry, ranting. <laughs> yeah, I love ranting. <laughs> it's a lot of food for thought. It's so important. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I think... You know, and it's a it's a 
one of the problems that I see in it is that um, psychoanalysis has become sort of, for some reason, it's become in, in the um, pecking order of therapies. Um, it, it, it's it's the elite, you know, um, and and I think that um, for me, I mean, I for most of my life, I'm, I'm mixed race. For most of my life, I have need to survive. I've had to kind of forward my um, my whiteness, okay. Um, and when I thought that I was um, achieving that, I thought I was really accomplishing something, okay. <laughs> I thought I was, you know, doing something. Uh, obviously, it was driven by survival, but at a certain point, it wasn't. It was driven by some kind of need for recognition. And I think um, psychoanalysis has positioned itself as it's the it's the top it's the most elite, so that there is an already embedded in that kind of an exclusive thing that you have to kind of prove yourself over and over again and jump through hoops and and um, um, there's something about that that um, you know and then once you're there you're supposed to be grateful you know that you're in that you're in the fold. That that's really problematic when you're when you're looking at um, barriers to entry and people who haven't been able to have access to those layers of privilege, you know, are are dealing with and a constant constantly, constantly. Yeah, absolutely. Again, class, race, and money. Yeah, class, race. Yeah. Yeah, I went to that first New York Institute. That's the institute I went to, and um, yeah, when they had their like open house party and everything, it's like you know, Upper East Side, Manhattan, this like huge ballroom events and all of this stuff. And it's just, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a, yeah, old white boys club. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any other institution with that kind of human geography, we would automatically be suspicious of it, right? As anybody remotely on left, you know, like it, it's, it's just the the word that the the young people use, you know, is sus. <laughs> it's suspicious, and when you add the factor of like we're plumbing the depths of people's most intimate secrets, mm -hmm. right? Just the the extraordinary leverage and coercive potential of that just it really troubles me. And I mean, there, there have obviously been like lots of different institutions that have tried. I think to move away from that in different procedural ways and cultural ways. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure how successful they are because I, I think in a way it's, it's the product of like an unmetabolized like intergenerational traumatic lineage for mm -hmm. so many of us in psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. That like, it, it, it's, it's like what I forget who's, is this Tafuan Godier? I can't remember, but they had a big history, right. That it's, it's really, really hard for us to like countenance how, you know, how in the undertow of big history we are in our field and, and how, it, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. hard to shake. Yeah. Yeah, and then the other side of that, the you know, when I went to that institute, is them, like, teaching you, you know, how to see who is, like, eligible for psychoanalytic treatment, you know, like, who's able mm -hmm. to receive it as if, mm -hmm. like, anyone can't benefit, you know? <laughs> That's the other side of completely, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. cutting off the patients. Mm -hmm. 
part of what sticks with me, just in relation to what you're saying, Vanessa, is when you when your product this is a subculture, right? When you grow up and when you're a product of this subculture, what you really see is that analysts are crazy, <laughs> right? And like people sometimes sort of globally say, like, well, why shouldn't we? Like, of course we are. Why should we be any different than anybody else? And it's like, yeah, I agree with that. But like, we're like we set ourselves out as if we're not. Right. Our entire, like I'm saying our, I'm not trained as a psychoanalyst, but I, I have an impulse to not, not give credence to their title protection of that, because I think intellectually what we're all doing here is psychoanalysis and that makes us <laughs> psychoanalysts. But the, the, the just sheer amount of like insight free, crazy behavior is out of control. <laughs> and I, I'm, I don't really think we have a lot of standing to make a determination about like, you know, yeah, it's uh, uh, psychoanalyst heal thyself in, with a lot of these things, right? No, it's totally next level. And I didn't finish that institute. I went for three years and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Because it's just mm -hmm. like, like you said, there's like endless hoop jumping. And mm -hmm. it's like, I think by the time I quit, it was like, you know, you have to take people four times a week. I'm a new psychologist, right, with a new practice that I'm doing like in the evening after I work at a hospital from eight to four, you know. And then I have like one analysis coming in four times a week for five dollars, one analysis coming in four times a week for ten dollars and another one coming in for like twenty five dollars. And then my ten dollar guy, he started grad school. He was like, yeah, good for him. He's like, you know, moving forward in his life and we right. couldn't make our schedules align for one yeah. semester and I was like okay so this semester I just told my supervisor he's going to come three times instead of four times because yeah I didn't think that would be a problem and they were like oh well then you can't like move forward and I was like what <laughs> I was like it's just for this one semester and the only other thing I could do is like seeing see him at like you know, 6.30 or something before I went to the hospital. So I'm like crazy schedule. And I was like, I'm not doing that. And they're like, well, you can take on another analysis. And I was like, so I'm going to have another four-time week patient for like $10? <laughs> it's like, I can't afford to do this. I could just work as, I'm already a psychologist. I could just work as a psychologist and take insurance and get $100 a session. You know, <laughs> like, this is crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. And yeah. you're raising, right? they have meaningfully no evidence that that actually makes a difference, right? This notion of three times a week, there's just like not an evidentiary basis that it matters, mm -hmm. right? That you, nobody can cite me anything that really persuasively says that. So it's it's an article of faith, right? And I think, you know, this is where uh, we're so excited to have invited like, like Anne Pellegrini and Jeff Charlotte, right? That like mm -hmm. religion is this underanalyzed aspect of psychoanalytic life, including and especially I know this is not a new insight, but like how psycho psychoanalysis functions as a kind of clerical order and along clerical logics. And, mm -hmm. you know, as somebody who grew up in Boston during the, the cardinal law era of like cover up sexual abuse, like I, I am not inclined to set a lot of faith in store in, in any organization that runs itself that way. Yeah, right, right. Totally. And I don't yeah, want so, my analysts to subscribe to that. Yeah, so part of what we're, we're doing is trying to, um, uh, at the conference, open up, you know, these are taboo topics, you know, I mean, woo -hoo. Um, they're very um, activating um, and people immediately go to their places, you know, um, so, but we're trying to like, um, we're, tr we're trying to just, to, to make it possible to have those conversations at the, and create a, 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 an atmosphere that's more welcoming, 
you know, where where people from different stripes of psychoanalysis, old, young, you know, lapsed, you know, returning, you know, can can find can be welcome and 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 um, you know happy to be with us. And and so we want to make sure that people feel that this that they are welcome. Already, you know, I'm troubled by it's in New York City. It's super expensive. Um, you know, we're <clears throat> You know, we're already we're participating in barriers to entry around money, which which troubles me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we but, went nine rounds on that one, trying to trying to get out yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. But 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 that's the that's the frame that we're trying to do is um, have it be expansive. Yeah, and um, um, toward the end, and um, we have pre conference workshops um, that are going to be very interesting. One is a um, Francisco Gonzalez is going to come and do a a, a very long re, um, a, a three and a half hour workshop on um, reimagining the the Institute along the lines of the conversation that we're having with a bunch of people. So we're hoping um, to to create a space that um, is generative, that is allows for imagination, that opens up a potential space for discussion where we can disagree, but not be disagreeable. Although we'll be disagreeable. I know us, you know. Um, Yeah, me. But but you know that that because things feel foreclosed right now, which is antithetical to you know our our our, our mission. So we're trying to um, open things up, and that means just give people breathing space to be themselves, um, to just talk a little bit more freely. You know, if you need to have a paper to ground yourself, like I do, that's okay. But you don't have to stay there. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a let your hair down thing. I, I think ideally, right? <laughs> and. Um, you know, Mary and I both being kind of multiracial, like we're, you know, we're, we're coming from cultural context where being welcoming, right. And being good hosts is really dearly important. And, and I, I just think about how, how, how often that hasn't happened in my own experience in the field, right? Like I, I have a vivid memory of, um, being, I, I don't think, I think I was just out of my MSW at the time. So I, and I was like 25, 24, 25 and like brand new. And I went to this um, talk that was being held at a very, very Tony house in Cambridge. Um, and you, I walked into this living room and it was like a, like a 25 foot long, like pure white carpet. Right. And there were like all of these drinks set out like, white wine, red wine. And I was like, Oh no, I, I think we see where the story's going. And like some person, like, of course spilled red wine on the rug. Of course they did. It was there. Red wine, like it's a drink, drink spill. And they, they were kind of looked at as if they had committed this cardinal sin. And um, it, it, it was so kind of humiliating for them and almost like vicariously humiliating for me to watch. Like it puts you in fear of being the one who, spills on the rug next. So I didn't have anything to drink that afternoon because it just, the whole thing set me on edge. And, and I think that that kind of, <laughs> that kind of thing literally and symbolically just happens so constantly. I don't think psychoanalysis is alone in that obviously like professions are exclusionary, but we would just never want anyone to feel like they couldn't like spill their drink and like track mud in and like be a little bit emotionally or materially messy and so like not not have all the have all the merit badges like it shouldn't matter we we just like this stuff mm-hmm. right like it's 
it's exciting to like that should be that should be the only barrier to entry. Like, do you give a shit? Mm-hmm. Right? If you give a shit, like you should be able to come hang out and we should all just talk. And and you shouldn't have to prove that you already read the book, right? You shouldn't have to prove that you already know how to whatever. It's like that's this exclusionary stuff just is like it's not good for anyone. Yeah. Ultimately. Absolutely. And I know professions are exclusionary, but it's psychoanalysis. <laughs> I don't know, for me in my life, psychoanalysis like did so much for me. And, you know, I just like, it's just like frustrated me because of course, when I went into it, I had no idea that the field was like this, you know, I just was like, I love this, it's helped me, I want to help other people, you know, and I think a lot of people yeah. feel that way. But then I realized there's this other aspect of people who like want to be seen as these like public intellectual talking head, da, 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 da. and they're yeah. coming at it from like a whole different scene. That's <laughs> just like, um, yeah, or this status thing where they're trying to keep keep the money in the family or whatever. I don't know. No offense to you, Carter. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not offended because I think you are. Like, you're joking, but you're completely correct that that has been my incentive structure for a long time. Like uh, I was totally trained up along these the, in this value set. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think Mary, you alluded to your a version of this for yourself earlier, but like mm-hmm. when I got into psychoanalysis, I was totally incentivized to like minimize my brownness, minimize my queerness, minimize what like an anarchist maniac I am. Like mm-hmm. it was clear that like none of those things were gonna make people respect me. Mm-hmm. And in a a a developmentally vulnerable period in my life that I'm now ethically like embarrassed about i totally went along with that right and you know i i really i I have found that like the values that make me feel like i'm living a good life Mm -hmm. and the values that make me feel like a successful psychoanalyst are not neatly aligned Mm -hmm. And, and part of what i've been trying to explore in myself is like what lets me become captivated by the latter right like why is my own experience of what feels like living a good life and being ethical like not not enough right why do why do i endow this object of psychoanalysis with the power to adjudicate like whether i'm doing a good job um and obviously we should all be receptive to peer review right and stuff like that that's part of being intellectually honest but it's beyond that right it's not it's about like you know like yeah it's 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 more insidious than that Mm -hmm. at least in my mental life I don't want to speak for other people's mental lives but in my mental life it is Mm -hmm. yeah I I think not enough can be said Um, at least for me it's really important that um, that people feel welcome people feel like they have a place people feel like they can bring their 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 non-white selves okay (laughs) Um, into psychoanalysis. It's really important to me. And I use non-white deliberately, you know, but um, I, um, I really, that's so important. I mean, we, if we, we, we need to embrace, you know, the, the true um, multi-theoretical, multi-perspective, multi, the complexity that psychoanalysis has the capacity to contain and why we keep narrowing it and narrowing it, narrowing it makes no sense to me. I really, I'm, I'm a, I'm completely in love with psychoanalysis. It hasn't saved my life, but it saved my mind more than once. It has the, it has the capaciousness. It's a capacious theory that can hold us. 
not just our whiteness, but our every, our all. So, I mean, that's what I'm, that's my font. That's what I want to leave with. That's my fondest wish for the field. Here, here, right. But like, you know, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled about the kind of what compromises psychoanalysis had to make intellectually and institutionally and materially coming out of the crucible of the second world war and like all of the flight mm -hmm. and displacement and trauma around that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I guess for me, like it's, it, it has the potential to be this incredibly like anti-capitalist, like countercultural practice, right? Where it's like, I think there's a lot of hand wringing about how we're our mode of doing therapy is being pushed out by things like managed care and stuff like that. And there's a fight that needs to be fought around that for the sake of access for people who don't have money. And at the same time, like it's, it's not just therapy, right? It's, it's a way of being with each other and seeing ourselves and challenging ourselves to grow that like, is like, post therapeutic <laughs> and, and it's, it's like a model of a way we get to live with each other and live inside of our and live inside of our own heads with like more ethically and in a, in a in a less alienated way yeah um and i mean that that's just it's so yeah it's been that for me at different points in, in my life and it's so exciting for me i think that yeah. we get to put on this event that really showcases like it, psychoanalysis as a kind of potentially radical project if we when we choose to take it that way yeah right but we got to choose Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Drs. Mary Kim Brewster and Carter Carter. For more information about their upcoming conference, visit division39springmeeting.net. And now the song Transmit from the album Dream Exploded, a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy, available at Bandcamp. I want to thank my husband, Carl Abrahamson, for providing the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious podcast. And I also want to note that all of the music at our Bandcamp is free download or name your price. So visit highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. The collaborations I've done with Pete Murphy are also available at his Bandcamp, PeteMurphy.BandCamp.com. Enjoy. Beginning. Transmit. This was the first dream. Do you remember? Magic. I've encountered magic. Her body in you. Space 
quiet, escape, cut out. The space created creates you. Eventually, the space created creates magic of frequency designed, sparkling. Death sits in you. sparkle, stars, and shine. It's all a matter of time. A magical world, recognition, deception, pale, unsurprisingly, forgotten, dream and live.